Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. You know, one of the biggest myths surrounding the vegan diet is that vegans don't get enough protein, right? Most common question vegans are asked by meat eaters, where do you get your protein from? And I'll specifically address that question in a minute. But the problem here is meat has really become synonymous with protein. But come on, protein is protein. Protein is made from amino acids. And amino acids are indeed required for making the proteins in our body, right? People build muscle and other necessary body proteins from amino acids, which come from the proteins we eat. But these amino acids are just as readily available in plants as they are in meat. Yes, meat is protein dense, but protein is found in plant-based foods. And there's this belief by some that one could never get too much protein and more protein is better. Well, it's simply not true. Consuming excess amounts of protein can actually be harmful. And many people are unaware of the health risks associated with a high protein diet. So if you're eating animals, it's pretty likely you're getting too much protein. The typical meat eating North American eats about twice the amount of protein that they need in a single day. And the main problem here with too much protein is your body can't store it. Your body can store fat, your body can store carbohydrates, but you can't store protein. So what happens, it gets metabolized and releases toxic substances. It also causes you to lose calcium, so animal protein creates this acidic condition in your body, which can be a bad thing, but that's a whole other topic. So where do we vegans get our protein? From our plant-based diets. In fact, plants are so rich in protein that they can meet the protein needs of the Earth's largest animals. Elephants, giraffes, hippopotamuses, and cows, they all are vegetarians. They certainly are able to obtain the protein they need by only eating plants. So how about us human vegans specifically? You got your whole grains, certain breads, rice, barley, whole grain pastas, Your legumes, right? What's a legume? Anything that grows in a pot. Beans, peas, lentils, very protein rich. And this would also include all the soy or tofu products out there. Tofu is also known as bean curd, which comes from soy milk. Green vegetables, yes, certain veggies are a great source of protein. Broccoli, for example. And then we have our nuts, sprouts, and seeds, again, loaded with healthy protein. And remember, with these foods, you're not only getting your healthy source of protein, you're getting other vital nutrients as well that you will not find in meat. And that's the thing. Meat is protein and fat. That's it. No fiber, no complex carbohydrates for energy, no vitamins to protect your body from illnesses. Meat is protein and fat. And we already said that most North American meat eaters are probably getting too much protein, which is not healthy for you. And the fat in meat is mostly saturated fat. And this fat turns into cholesterol. And we know about what this so-called bad cholesterol can do to us. And by the way, there's no cholesterol in plant-based foods. Now let's talk about fiber for a minute. What is fiber? Fiber is plant roughage. So you're not going to find fiber in meat. It's only in plant foods. It's it's actually the indigestible part of plant foods that pushes through our digestive system, absorbing water along the way and easing bowel movements. And a high fiber diet has many health benefits. Soluble fiber reduces the amount of cholesterol the liver makes and slows the absorption of cholesterol. So overall, soluble fiber lowers our bad cholesterol levels. Legumes, right? 
beans, peas, lentils, oats, barley, beans, fruits, and vegetables, all high in fiber. There's no fiber in meat. Healthiest diet you can have, high fiber, low fat. That's a plant-based diet. The human body has absolutely no nutritional requirements for animals or their products. Okay, so back to protein. So Lori, you're vegan. You must be protein deficient and weak and frail. And how are you even standing up right now? Plants have protein. I'm telling you, if you're consuming enough calories via a relatively healthy plant-based diet, it's very difficult to not get enough protein in your diet. So let's talk about specific foods. Two tablespoons of peanut butter contain approximately eight grams of protein. I put about that much peanut butter or almond butter on my whole grain bread in the morning. And the whole grain bread I have is about another eight grams of protein. So that's already 15 or 16 grams of protein for breakfast. And didn't even mention my seven grams of protein in my oatmeal, which is loaded with fiber, by the way. And then maybe for lunch, I'll have some lentil soup. Ha! Very high in fiber. And guess what? A single cup of cooked lentil beans is going to offer 18 grams of protein. So my lentil soup and maybe some brown rice for lunch is a pretty proteinaceous, healthy meal, wouldn't you say? Now, if you want to believe the guidelines from the United States Department of Agriculture that the recommended daily allowance of protein for the average American man and woman is 56 grams and 46 grams, respectively. I think I pretty much just met my daily protein needs with my breakfast and lunch alone, don't you? This quantity of protein one needs on a daily basis is almost impossible to avoid when daily caloric needs are being met by eating a relatively healthy plant-based diet. Another myth about the vegan diet, you don't get enough calcium. Many people think if you don't drink the secretions from a cow or products made from cow's milk like cheese, then you must not be meeting your body's calcium needs and you're going to get weak bones and osteoporosis and whatever. So where do I get my calcium? Okay, some of the most calcium-rich foods include nuts, seeds, tofu, beans, grains, leafy green vegetables, actually same kinds of foods I get my protein from. In addition, many vegan alternatives to cow's milk, like soy or almond milk, are fortified with calcium, and it's probably recommended that most women take a calcium supplement anyway. But putting aside the cruelty inherent in the dairy industry and all the evidence out there that shows that milk and dairy products are not only not necessary in your diet, but in fact are harmful to your health, doesn't it seem strange or unnatural if you drink cow's milk or eat dairy products like ice cream? yogurt, cheese, that you're consuming something that is intended to be consumed by calves? I mean, the milk a cow produces was intended to feed her offspring, not humans. Yes, I know, ice cream tastes good, but it, it's a strange concept if you think for a minute about where it came from, isn't it? Health benefits of a vegan diet, a plant-based diet, the most common diseases that are killing Americans today, obesity, heart disease, diabetes, and cancer, are not a natural consequence of aging or secondary to bad genes. It's our diet. 95% of the American diet is processed and refined foods and animal products. This is the best diet to kill us. And this is the typical North American diet. And it's not only killing us, but it's making our kids fatter than ever. And, by the way, Americans are spending more money on health care than any other industrialized country in the world yet we're sicker than ever. 
Heart disease, stroke, cancer, other illnesses are the direct result of the toxic Western diet. But here's the good news. It's been shown that many of the illnesses that are caused by consuming animal products are reversible. For example, the narrowing and clogging of your arteries by animal fat and cholesterol can be reversed. They can open up again simply by changing your diet. Doctors tend to overlook the power of nutrition as a means to prevent disease. In fact, I don't remember taking any courses on nutrition when I went to medical school. For me, the decision to become a vegan was easy. When I learned about the horrible cruelty and suffering inflicted upon 10 billion farm animals every year, the tremendous impact on the environment, and the effects on our health, the choice was pretty obvious. You can take control of your health. Make a New Year's resolution. Give up the meat, dairy, and eggs. I'm confident within one to two months, your energy is going to improve. Your digestion will improve. If you have high blood pressure or cholesterol, you're going to see that come down. Your weight's going to fall. Your concentration will improve. You can do this. A plant-based diet is the single most powerful thing you can do to prevent and fight against disease. So it's good for you. And of course, it's good for the animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. You're listening to Animals Today. Hi, it's Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of Animals Today Radio, and I'd like to invite you to join me each week right here for the latest animal news from around the globe. From animals in the wild, to animals on farms and in agriculture, to our beloved dogs and cats, Animals Today tackles the important issues about their welfare and rights while promoting compassion and respect for all living creatures. And yes, Animals Today is your home for a serious talk about animals, but there's big doses of fun and adventure for everyone. If you want to know what you can do to help tigers in the wild, or whether your family should adopt a tortoise, or why you should avoid buying puppies from pet stores, you will love Animals Today. So make sure to join us on this station each week. Visit us at animalstodayradio.com, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and join the discussion on Facebook. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Animals Today. A few years ago, our veterinarian advised us to begin giving our dogs preventative heartworm medication. As you know, we live in the Southern California desert, and it was explained to us that whereas in the past, heartworm was not an issue around here, more cases were being seen and the recommendations have been updated. So now, every month, the dogs get a little tablet to chew, and an expensive little tablet, I must add, and before starting this medicine, we had to get them tested to make sure they did not have an active infection. So what exactly is heartworm, and what do you need to know? about it to keep your dogs and cats safe. Veterinarian Robert Reed is back with us. Dr. Reed is medical director at VCA Rancho Mirage Animal Hospital. Hey, Robert. Hi, Lori. Robert. Nice to hear your voice. Thank you. You too. Robert, what is heartworm? So heartworm, of course, is a worm. Um, it mainly affects dogs. Um, unlike most of the worms we think of that might affect dogs, this one does not live in the intestine. It lives in the bloodstream. And as they mature in a dog, they settle in the main arteries around the heart, so they cause heart disease. And most dogs that get heartworm disease will die from it. So how can we detect early infection, Robert? 
It's probably important to to recognize how heartworms are transmitted to dogs and what leads to the infection uh, to understand what we can do to prevent it and how we might manage it. Heartworms, of course, being a blood-borne disease, have to be inoculated by something like, in this case, a mosquito that can carry the parasite from one dog who's infected to a dog who's not infected. And there are only certain types of mosquitoes that can do this because the parasite has to be transformed within the mosquito before it can become infected to another dog. And for this reason, some areas are going to be more problematic for heartworms than others because sometimes the mosquitoes are more prevalent that can carry heartworms. And, of course, those mosquitoes have to have a reservoir of dogs in the area that have heartworms. So you'll definitely see some variation in the frequency of heartworm disease in any given area. So to prevent dogs from developing heartworm disease, we recommend that they be tested to ensure that they don't currently carry the parasite and then go on a monthly tablet as a preventive to keep them from getting disease associated with heartworms. And it's kind of interesting how this works. It's not actually preventing the infestation of worms but rather it's killing any worms that they do pick up. That's why it's only given once a month, so that anything that a dog has picked up in the previous month will still be killed or will be killed by the medication. The heartworm larva that circulates in the bloodstream is vulnerable to the medication for about 30 days. The medication doesn't actually stay in the system for 30 days. It stays there for one day and then it's gone. It just kills anything that a dog has picked up in the last month. Now, can cats get heartworm? Cats can get heartworm, yes. They're not the primary carriers, they're not the primary hosts for heartworm, and it's a little harder for them to get it. And it's really unusual for a cat to serve as a reservoir for infection. But cats can get heartworm, and they can suffer heartworm disease. In fact, in some cases, it's actually more severe in cats than it is in dogs. Robert, as I mentioned earlier, our dogs are now taking monthly preventive medicine. Should all dogs and cats be taking this? You know, I think so. It's really, because the heartworm incidence varies by region, it's important to talk to your your local veterinarian to, to know what the actual risk is. I don't think heartworm disease does any harm. And actually, I mean, heartworm prevention does any harm, but it actually, and it actually does protect against some other diseases, but not every area has a high risk for heartworms. And it's also important to keep in mind that risk levels can change over time as, introdu- as mosquitoes are introduced into an area, as the population of infected dogs grows in an area, and sometimes when wildlife like coyotes become infected with uh, heartworm disease, they can serve as reservoirs as well, which can affect the frequency uh, or incidence of heartworm disease in a given area. Why do we have to test the dog before starting heartworm medication? That's a good question. Uh, Usually the main reason we test dogs is to see if they already have been affected by the worm, because once they have it, it's not going to be affected by the medication. In other words, the preventive treatment does not get rid of the worm if it's been there for more than 30 days. So if a dog has heartworms 
that are in a mature stage, the medication that we use for prevention will not work. The treatment has to be done differently, and it's much more involved than the prevention. If we didn't know that they had heartworms already and we put them on that medication, we might think we were protecting them when in reality they had a disease that was already developing that we were not addressing. Um, There's also a very slight risk that if a dog has heartworms in its system and you start them on a medication, you might cause some illness in them. But the main reason is to make sure that you don't overlook the fact that they already have heartworms and that you're not addressing it. What was the impact of the Katrina disaster on the prevalence of heartworm disease nationally? It's hard to say for sure, but you'd expect that certain areas that might have been lightly affected by heartworms could have had their incidence increase as a result of dogs from Louisiana or another similarly high area, high incidence area of heartworms were transferred into that area. So if a number of dogs came into an area that had heartworms and no one was used to having heartworms around and weren't using prevention, and a mosquito was present that present that could transmit the heartworms, then that would certainly increase the risk locally for dogs affected by those mosquitoes that had been exposed to the positive dog. So, Laura, you mentioned the effect that uh, the transporting Katrina dogs into an area might have um, on the incidence of heartworm disease, and that's an example of how the the risk of heartworm disease, the level of risk can evolve over time. Uh, For example, again, we have in Southern California recently learned that there are species of mosquito that that are not native to California that have been introduced from other countries and are capable of carrying heartworms. And we have not previously had a large number of mosquitoes that could transmit heartworms to our dogs. Now we have a potential population of mosquitoes that's much larger than it used to be and our level of risk is expected to increase in the next few years, particularly if pet owners in our area are not becoming more aware of it and are not beginning to use the prevention more readily, more effectively. Do we see heartworm disease in other places around the world, such as areas where there are lots of mosquitoes, and I'm thinking Africa and South America? There are different types of heartworms, but certainly you can see heartworm disease in any area where the parasite exists and a mosquito that's capable of transmitting it is present as well. The heartworm disease that we deal with in the U.S. is fairly specifically for our hemisphere. Veterinarian Robert Reed, thank you so much. You're welcome. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back to the show. At some time, you probably have wondered when you're encountering a homeless person, what can I do to assist them? 
Um, and for animal lovers, if there's a pet with them, questions about the well-being of the animals also arise, like, what can I do to help or should I help? Should I act now? Are the dogs or the other animals okay, safe, and healthy? Or maybe, uh, can I do something later? Uh, now in the U.S., the crisis of homelessness seems really bad, doesn't it? Cities like Los Angeles, San Diego, Seattle, and San Francisco, and other places like Orange County, California, are wrestling with huge homeless issues now. You all know the contributing factors and how tough it is to improve these very complex situations. Here in Animals Today, of course, we are especially interested in the animals who accompany the homeless who are owned by them. I'm very pleased to welcome Genevieve Frederick, founder and president of Pets of the Homeless. Pets of the Homeless is the only national animal organization focused completely on feeding and providing emergency veterinary care to pets of the homeless. Welcome, Genevieve. Oh, thank you. I appreciate this opportunity to spread the word about our organization to your listeners. Fabulous. Okay, so what are the main issues faced by the homeless regarding their pets? Well, the main issue that we uh, hear about is that when there is an emergency, such as a dog getting hit by a car, an ear infection, or digestive issues, the homeless don't have the resources to go directly to a hospital. So that is the main issue. The next issue is not being allowed into a homeless shelter because they can't get in with their pet. We've uh, pondered that and talked about that second one very often, and I look forward to hearing more about these situations as we go here. Uh, your organization has been operating for about 10 years, I read. Do you get the feeling the situation for homeless people and their pets is especially severe now, like I mentioned before, or is it just being covered in the news more? I think that there is a severe shortage of low-income housing, which is causing this huge uptick of homelessness and that there is a shortage of beds in homeless shelters, whether they take animals or not. There's just not enough beds in this country. And we're seeing more and more encampments in cities across the country. Once one person in that encampment learns about our programs, then it spreads very quickly within that homeless community. I would imagine. Okay, so why don't you uh, tell us about your your mission uh, and uh, your main activities and programs? Absolutely. Well, we believe in the healing power of companion pets and the human-animal bond, which is very important in the lives of many homeless people. They find solace, protection, companionship through their pets. They care for their pets on limited resources, so they themselves have less. Our task nationwide is to feed and provide basic emergency vet care to these, their pets, and thus relieve the anguish and anxiety of the homeless who cannot provide for their pets. We have four unique programs that are national, and they include pet food, emergency care, wellness clinics, and sleeping crates to the homeless shelters. Those programs um, we've, when I first started this 12 years ago, the main program was Feeding Pets of the Homeless, and that is our legal name, but we do business as Pets of the Homeless because as the organization evolved, we kept adding more and more programs. It's so nice to uh, hear the scope of your work. How do you, let's start, say, with the food. How do you get the food to the hungry pets? 
We have a network of over 470 donation sites across the country, almost one in at least one in every state. And they have taken over 558 tons of pet food and supplies to various local food banks, homeless shelters, and to homeless encampments. That 558 tons of pet food has a fair market value of over three point excuse me, $2.3 million. That's a lot of pet food and from a lot of very generous donors across the country. Oh, that's wonderful uh, to hear. And I would imagine uh, that number is growing every year. Yes, it absolutely is. Um, We're being more proactive working with our donation sites than we have in the past. Uh, We actually were able to hire a person, and that is her job, is to coordinate with our volunteers and our donation sites across the country. So, yeah, it's, it's moving very quickly. You mentioned there are two ways that you deliver health care to the needy pets through uh, emergency care and wellness clinics. Tell us about them. Right. Okay. Well, how that works is a homeless person will call us directly to request vet care. And then we actually question that caller and make sure that they qualify for our help and then we make an appointment with the nearest hospital and we pre-approve an exam. The hospital then calls us back to let us know if additional tests, x-rays are needed and kind of give us a treatment plan and an estimate on the cost that this will be. We always pay our hospitals directly at the time of service. To date, we've paid over $727,000 to 679 hospitals in 328 cities wow. in 45 mm-hmm. states. Well, congratulations. So we, when I say we're national, we definitely are national. We also sponsor wellness clinics where doctors can volunteer their time to go where the homeless congregate and to give a basic exam and vaccinations. We pay the hard costs of these clinics. So far, we've sponsored over 500 of these clinics. During that basic exam, if the doctor sees that there is additional treatment needed, then they will direct that person to call us direct, and then that becomes one of our emergency cases. So just so that your listeners understand, this is only available to homeless that are either on the streets, in a shelter. Uh, we have criteria that uh, we we ask that will qualify these people. As you can well imagine, each of these cases are is very time-consuming. So first we vet the caller. Then we find a hospital that will work with us by giving us a discount. And just so that you know, last year, in 2017, hospitals discounted over $44,000 of their services, and we 
we're very grateful and to these hospitals and these doctors. But anyway, we went, once we're talking with a doc or a vet tech about the case, and then what's the best treatment for this pet, and then we're then the case manager pays the hospital direct, and then they write up a report on each case. And a lot of these success stories can be found on their website, in our newsletter, on social media, um, and a lot of them, of course, we ask the hospital to take a picture of that pet so that the story has more meaning when you see that photograph. So just to give you an idea, we keep a database on all of our callers, and I can tell you that your listeners are probably be shocked to learn that 57% of the cases that we have done are from homeless women. Mm. Now, that's that was shocking to me when I first realized that this was the statistic. But then I realized that women stay in the shadows because it is so dangerous on the streets. Um, living in your car is even dangerous. And, of course, on the streets is even more dangerous. And the average time that the caller, all of our callers, have been homeless is 2.3 years. Oh, my goodness. Now, 10% of them have some kind of employment, but it's not enough for even low-income housing. 21% have some kind of a disability. So these are people that can't get a job because of whether it's a mental or a physical disability. 16% of our callers are on Social Security, which tells me that they they're, have a disability that the government is giving them Social Security, or they are elderly women who are in Social Security that can no longer afford their apartments. And it's because of the low-income housing in today's market. Of the homeless that have called us for emergencies, 17% of them live in their car, truck, or van, and 12% live on the streets. These are statistics that I'm sure your listeners are going to be wow. And knowing all of these statistics, these are people that call us and they have either a dog or a cat. 80% of them are dogs, 20% are cats. So let's say someone wants to support the organization. You're going to give the website in a moment, but can someone develop a program uh, locally to uh, partner with you? Um, You know what? People that want to assist us more than giving us funding can volunteer to become a recruiter in their city. And we ask them to recruit two donation sites. These are businesses. They're vet hospitals. It could be your groomer. It could be your cleaners, your banker, uh, any kind of a business that is open to the public where the public can bring in pet food and supplies. When they're recruiting a donation site, they can work with a local food bank and help get that food delivered to that food bank, or they can take it to a a homeless encampment. We have a big list of things on our website of other ways that people can help us. But, of course, we always need donations of pet food and supplies and, of course, funds that pay for our programs and our general operating costs. But I'm, i got to tell you, Peter, I'm happy and proud to let people know that 83% of every dollar that is donated to us goes to our programs. Yes, that's a very strong percentage. We've been speaking with Genevieve Frederick, founder and president of Pets of the Homeless. You're doing wonderful work. What's the website? Pets of the Homeless 
www.animalsdirectory.org. Thanks for joining us on Animals Today. Thank you. Okay, more with Animals Today after the break. Welcome back to Animals Today. Hey, Peter. Hey, Lori. Do you worry about going in the ocean? Oh, uh, I worry about jellyfish. Worry about jellyfish? Do you worry about sharks? No, I don't worry about sharks. Maybe I should. I want to know how much you know about sharks. Okay. Let's see. I'm going to just tell you not much. I have a quiz for you. Yes. All about sharks. Okay. Ready? Peter, true or false, you have a greater chance of being struck dead by lightning than being killed by a shark attack. Mm, I'm going to say that is true. That is true. About 30 people die during shark attacks each year, but it is true. For every one human killed by a shark, how many sharks are killed by humans? 200,000, a half a million, or two million? Two million. That's correct. Yeah. For every human killed by a shark, two million sharks are killed by humans. Isn't that sad? Yes. Scientists used to, I I don't know if they still do, but they used to study shark cartilage to research possible cures for what? For arthritis? Cancer. Oh, yeah. Scientists study shark cartilage to research possible cures for cancer because sharks rarely ever develop cancer. Yeah, it didn't work out so well. Right. What is the world's largest shark? The great white shark, tiger shark, whale shark? Pretty sure that's the whale shark. Very good. It can grow up to 50 feet long and weigh more than 40,000 pounds. True or false? Sharks have an acute sense of hearing. Oh, hearing. That's true. True is correct. Some sharks can hear prey from up to 3,000 feet away. Sharks lose a lot of teeth and grow them back quickly. So how many teeth do you think sharks go through in a lifetime? Okay, I'm going to guess about 500 teeth per life. 30,000. Oh, my goodness. The average shark has 40 to 45 teeth and can have up to seven rows of replacement teeth. So if you're one of those people who likes to wear a shark's tooth around your neck, like it's something special, it really isn't. They're all over the place. How many bones do sharks have in their body? Oh, I think I know they don't have any bones. Did you know they're classified as vertebrates? Well, yeah. Okay. Isn't that interesting, though? Okay. Vertebrate means you have a bony skeleton, right? Oh, that's... Good paradox there. I wonder how that slid through. The term cartilaginous fish means that the structure of the animal's body is formed of cartilage instead of bone. They don't have a bony skeleton like many other fish do. Peter, did sharks inhabit the earth before, during, or after the dinosaurs appeared? Before. How did you know what I was going to ask? I I know. How did I know? I I just said before the... I know. Before the planet of the apes. (laughs) 400 million years ago. Sharks inhabited the earth 200 million million years before the dinosaurs appeared and have changed only minimally during that time. I know. That's really amazing. It's incredible. What percent of shark attack victims are men? Oh, uh, how do they taste? Let's see. If I was a shark, uh, I'm going to say that 85% are men. How do they taste? Is that (laughs) (laughs) Men taste so much better than women. Yes, 90%. Despite the fact that almost equal amount of men and women swim in the ocean, men account for nearly 90% of shark attack victims. Mm -hmm. Do you think most shark attacks occur in relatively shallow waters or deep waters? I'll say the shallow waters. Yep. About two-thirds of shark attacks on humans have occurred in less than six feet of water. Mm. 
Do sharks lay eggs or give birth to live young? Okay, live birth. It's actually both. Oh, some shark Some sharks lay eggs, others give birth to live young. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. True or false? The film Jaws, though heavily fictionalized, was based on a real incident in 1916 where four people were killed by a shark off the coast of New Jersey. Okay, that story. I'm going to say that's a true story. It is true. Did you know that, though? No, no. Yeah, I didn't either. Better get a bigger boat. Remember that line? Yes. Oh, my God. Is that, how, is that, was that the exact line? I, I don't know. Remember. I can't remember, but there's some... Or you're going to need a bigger yeah, boat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 After they first spotted Jaws, yeah. there's a few pretty intense moments in that movie. I know. And not the fake thing coming out of the water that's supposed to be a shark, though. That was pretty old-fashioned. <laughs> <laughs> the cookie-cutter shark is named after what? Cookie-cutter shark. I don't know. Oh, oh, is this the shape that it leaves in your yes. in your body after it takes a bite out of you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's good. That's Did horrible. you know that, or was no, that just like just an a, educated guess? Oh, that's a horrible thing. <laughs> oh. You get bitten by a shark. Oh, this must be oh, a cookie Oh, look, Ma, I got a cookie-cutter cookie Don't piranhas leave a certain shape when I they can, take a little bite out of your like flesh Like an ice cream also? scoop? Or? Yeah, a little oh. <laughs> I think okay, they do. I, you asked, I'm not going in the ocean this, this <laughs> okay. I don't care. I don't, I'm not going in deep water or shallow water or anything. I'm just going to stay by the cocktail lounge. <laughs> You're going to stay in the waiting pool with I, cocktail in each hand? <laughs> I, I think waiting pools are pretty dangerous, too, if you know what I mean. True or false, some sharks can live in both salt and fresh water. Oh, I'm going to say that's true. That's true. Bull sharks can live in both salt and fresh water by regulating the substances in their blood. Yeah, that ability is just the most amazing thing to think about. That's it, Peter. You did pretty good. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> And this is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Hi, I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and this Animals Today Minute is about dog bites and how to avoid and prevent them. According to the CDC, approximately 4.5 million dog bites on people occur yearly. That means about 1 in 72 people get bitten each year by dogs. Now, we all love our dogs, but it's smart to know some of the facts about bites. National Dog Bite Prevention Week takes place during the second full week of April each year and focuses on educating people about preventing dog bites. According to the AVMA, most if not all bites can be prevented. By far, children are the most common victims of dog bites, followed by the elderly and, yes, postal carriers. We all know that the medical consequences of bites can be serious, like causing infections, causing severe pain, requiring surgery, causing disfigurement, and so on. The American Society of Plastic Surgeons reported that nearly 29,000 reconstructive procedures were performed in 2016 for injuries caused by dog bites. And dog bites often result in homeowners insurance claims. According to the data of the Insurance Information Institute, there were more than 18,000 dog bite insurance claims in 2017, with the average cost paid out per claim being about $37,000. When dogs bite, it is usually in response to something like the dog being stressed, scared, startled, or threatened. So the situations need to be managed by us people. And dog owners should properly socialize their pets. There's lots of information online about how to do that. And duh, we should keep our dogs on leashes when they're out. 
and choose the right dog for your family. And of course, make sure they're fixed, do appropriate obedience training, and keep them well exercised. Remember, a tired dog is a happy dog. A few especially risky situations have been identified, including when the dog is not with its owner, when the dog is with its owner, but the owner has not given permission to pet the dog, injured or sick dogs, dogs that are sleeping or eating, and growling and barking dogs. There are other common sense things to do to avoid bites, like avoiding placing one's hand through a fence where a dog is on the other side, and allowing dogs who want to be left alone their space. It bears repeating that far and away, most people who are bitten by dogs are children. So parents and dog guardians keep that in mind when they're near each other. Everyone agrees, even though dogs are man's best friend, there are too many people getting bitten by dogs. Do your part to make avoidable dog bites a rare occurrence. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and that's your Animals Today Minute for today.